This is the Landmark Theaters Film Club podcast. Today we'll hear moderator Amy Kaufman discuss the documentary Eating Animals with director Christopher Dylan Quinn and narrator-producer Natalie Porter. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Amy Kaufman. I am a writer at the Los Angeles Times and I'm so excited because we have two very special guests here tonight for a Q&A. First, we have Christopher Dylan Quinn, the director of Eating Animals. And then the producer of the film who also did the narration, Natalie Portman. Hello. Do you guys Hi. enjoy it? Yeah. Thank you all for being here. So um, as I'm sure most of you guys are aware, this is based on a book written by Jonathan Safran Foer that came out in 2009. And Natalie, um, you were friends with Jonathan, right, before he had written that book. Yeah, Jonathan I've known since I was in college, so almost 20 years now. And he, um, he sent me the manuscript of the book when, um, when it was about to be published. And I remember reading it because um, I was pregnant with my first child when, who's now seven, just turned seven. Um, so, so I remember exactly um, the moment of reading it and really connecting to the way he talked about wanting to impart values through food to his child and wondering what to feed his, his kids and, um, and sort of going through the same process myself while, while about to bring a life into the world. And you said, like, instantly after reading it, you wrote him and said, not only do I love this, but I think this should be a documentary. Well, I called him after and was, of course, very effusive in my praise for, for the book because it's, I'm sure many of you have read the, the book as well. Um, and if you haven't, I highly recommend reading it. It's a very different experience than the film, complimentary kind of um, companion pieces. Um, but I was I was just so moved and changed by it, and it felt like information that I I I wanted to to share. And I thought, um, you know, if it could be in film form, that there there was a different audience that could be reached. Yeah. And Christopher, when you heard from um, Natalie and Jonathan that they wanted to adapt this nonfiction book into a doc, were you like, how will I do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, the the book is is kind of atypical, right? It's not only a survey, so it bounces all over the place, but it was also just this really cool kind of structured book that made it very difficult to think of. But every, all the all the all the information in it and the storytelling compels you to want to make it into a film. I mean, I think that's why you were, and I I know other. Uh, Marshall Curry, who's also a doc filmmaker, he's like, when I read that book, I only thought of it as translated into a documentary. So, but it, it, yeah, I mean, the difficulty was really there's open letters, you know, from the farmers, and that was kind of what we really hooked ourselves into in terms of turning it into a subject-driven narrative, and that's what we all kind of agreed on in the early throws, and we we stuck with it and just hung with the farmers and and saw kind of the the you know the the big long dark shadow of corporate farming how it affects their lives individually 
How did you find the farmers that you focused on in the film, and were any of them hesitant to participate, given that this was their livelihood and they were speaking out against some big corporations? Well, I mean, so like the turkey farmer Frank Reese in Kansas, he was in the book, so that was that was an easy one. Just like Paul Willis, who was from Iowa, was also in the book. But um, we put feelers out to try and find a contract farmer that would be willing to talk to us, and that took about a year and a half because obviously it would, you know, if they if they spoke, it would ruin their lives, but Craig had reached that boiling point, as he talks about in the film, and so to our luck, uh, Compassion and World Farming uh, connected us to him, and at, at, at that time, uh, he was speaking to Nicholas Kristof at the New York Times, and they did a big expose, and it kind of, you know, it blew up, as he says. There's certainly um, some images that are hard to watch um, for animal lovers or for anyone, really, I think, um, of when you see how the animals are being treated. How did you decide um, how much of that to include? And were you guys worried about people not wanting to see that? Because I'm sure it's hard. Yeah. It was definitely something we talked about at the beginning that, of course, it's a, it's an, it's a part of the, the conversation that can't be left out, the, the animal suffering and the animal cruelty. But at the same time, particularly for those people who, who care a lot, and actually it's quite universal that most people do not believe in cruelty to animals. Almost everybody can agree on that. And people certainly don't like watching it. Um, that we didn't want to create something that would make people want to push the movie away or want to leave at that point or want to turn it off if they're watching it at home or something. So that was a conversation from the beginning. How do we include this as part of the conversation that's necessary, but also not alienate viewers? Yeah, but I mean, because we, you know, so a lot of organizations like Mercy for Animals gave us their library or access to their library. So we were digging through all these hours. From like undercover sort of. Undercover. And it was just, you know, it, you could see immediately if you just, you know, it, it, it would like, you would watch it for a day and it would destroy your week. You know, you like, it was some really bad stuff. I mean, I, we, we always say this is like the PG you know, oh. version of some of the material that's actually out there. And so I, I came to it naturally. I was just like, this really is affecting me to a, it buries the lead of this, the, the overall story because you can't get, once you see some of the really bad stuff. Um, so we were very thoughtful about what to include and what not to include. Can you guys both talk a little bit about more of your perspective of how you came to the film um, in terms of your opinions on eating meat and did that, did you try to take a step back and be impartial or did you want that influence in the movie? Well, I mean, I think Christopher is really the responsible for the creation of the film, so I wouldn't say that I, I had a piece in shaping that, but um, I think it was intentional not to tell people what to do. Um, I think we didn't want to scold anyone. We didn't want to, I mean, no one likes being told what they should or shouldn't do. But a way, of course, like all documentaries, of telling a story and showing lives that you wouldn't normally encounter um, in your daily life. Um, and I think that um, that human connection, seeing the effect on the people, seeing the effect um, on what happens when the environment is degraded, what happens to these people, what happens when the, the way the, the corporate um, 
control of the the market um, affects these individual farmers. Um, that that seeing the human impact uh, hopefully you know moves people and affects people and and m makes some some change. Yeah. You became a vegan after reading um, Jonathan's book. When you talk about your lifestyle, like what kind of reactions do you get, and how do you sort of open people up to having these discussions about these issues without, like you were saying, you know, feeling like you're stuffing it down people's throat? Well, I think just emphasizing that. I mean, I don't, I don't want anyone to judge me. I hate people have a lot of like assumptions and 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 judgments about vegans, as I'm sure the vegans in the audience might might experience and it's annoying and no one wants to be, you know, judged for your choices. We but and and also like laughing at having people having like beliefs is also people pe I feel like people make fun of you for like, oh, you have to be so earnest with everything you do kind of thing, you know. So there's a little bit of like embarrassment almost around it. But it is something I care about. It is something I believe is wrong. It is something I believe um, is is destroying the planet. And um, not just believe, but there is evidence, factual evidence for. And so to share that and hope that people make some change and also not so not be judgmental of other people when talking about it, um, but also creating other other ways. You know, Jonathan talks a lot about this kind of like non. You don't have to like pick a food identity. Like That's you, Christopher. Because yes. I asked him and the director and Christopher, like, or sorry, Christopher and Jonathan. Uh, you know, do you guys identify as vegetarian or vegan? They're like, no, we don't like to put a label on it. <laughs> and I was like, why? But explain. Uh, well, because I, I, you know, having spent you know five years kind of in this this arena, it's it it becomes very divisive, and I think that ultimately. Um, is problematic for kind of moving uh, into the future and creating change. And, and so everybody, all of a sudden, it, it's food. It's a weird thing. But like, I'm a meat eater. You go over there. I'm a, veg a vegetarian. You kind of hover over here. And then a vegan's over here. And yeah. it seems like those labels kind of complicate things to kind of getting to where we need to go. And that was one of the things that we definitely didn't want to have. Like uh, in the film, if you came in in Duluth, Minnesota and watched the film, that there would be something there for you. And that was something that we really worked hard to do. Actually chosen city. Oh, thanks. Um, but it was like a, you know, <laughs> Duluth, you know. Um, but the, the idea of like, you know, not making it that conversation, I think. And I don't, you know, I mean, I, I, I would consider, I guess, myself still a meat eater. I ate Frank's turkey in San Francisco two months ago. Or no, less than that. It was a couple of weeks ago. I can't remember. But I, it was probably two years since I had turkey. And so I'm probably more aligned. Was that weird? Did you feel eat. odd? A little bit. But, you know, it was with, you know, Frank was right there sitting next to me. So. <laughs> You know, I don't know. It was, yeah, but it, I, you know, this whole thing radicalized my diet too. Because when Jonathan and Natalie, when I first met with them, I was like, you kind of got the wrong guy. You're gonna eat meat, you know. And they thought that was actually a really good thing in a lot of ways. And and now I kind of see what they were thinking about because I went through this process and now I've radicalized my diet for all the reasons that you're talking about that matter to me. It's like we're 
on a crash course, you know, if we continue to accelerate um, our population and eat meat, we're, you know, we're, we're going to have to move from 50 billion animals raised annually to 100 billion. And where are we going with that? I mean, how many animals have to be raised? Uh, and all the while, we're already destroying our, you know, the, the environment. The animals have never suffered more. And so the, these things kind of crept into my consciousness as soon as we started to film. I like that the movie doesn't say, you know, you have to cut it out entirely. It's like meatless Mondays are just, you know, you can reduce, even reducing a little bit will have an impact. Um, and that's clearly an editorial choice to decide to show that perspective. Um, why go that route instead of, you know, being a little bit more extreme, I guess? Well, you might, you might have, the, for, I mean, I think a, a lot of the reason is because there's films out there that have already covered that in a lot of ways. and and. All this stuff that's in the film, I really didn't know before I read the book or before I went through the process of actually making the film. So it, in a lot of ways, um, I wanted to include it uh, because I was learning along the way. And I don't, um, I, yeah, I mean, I just felt like it's better to have this body of evidence and leave the room open for people to draw their own conclusions. I think we worked, or at least tried to work hard to to provide that, you know, that seemed to be the way to go anyway. And I think people know themselves. You know, I think people know if you're the type of person who can make extreme choices or changes or whatever, or if you're someone who's gonna like try most of the time and sometimes, you know, it doesn't work out and and that all makes an impact. Like everyone trying a little bit makes a huge impact as opposed to people just being like, oh, I can't do that. I could never not Meet, eat meat ever again, you know, it's better to say, oh, I could do that once a day or once a week. Yeah, I think it's a really overwhelming concept for people, you know, thinking about cutting out meat. And why do you, I mean, especially in this country, it's like such a like, we eat meat and potatoes. Like, why do you think that's so entrenched in the culture, um, eating it's meat? It's been a big marketing campaign, like, <laughs> for a long time. They, um, they spend a lot of money, yeah. Um, yeah, I, it, even the statistics and there's statistics in the book, I remember, of like in the 50s, how much people ate meat and how it's just become, you know, many times more than that because of concerted ad campaigns that put, you know, I was so surprised when I went to Europe for the first time and saw that they don't have like eggs for breakfast. And I was like, oh, I thought eggs were breakfast food. And they're like, nope, that was like, that was a campaign to make eggs and bacon like part of an American breakfast. That's that's our country. Um, so it's it's been, I mean, everyone remembers the Got Milk ads um, when we were growing up, like. Which she never did. It didn't do, um, <laughs> um, but like that was that was to tell people that like adults should be drinking a glass of milk to be healthy, which is not true. <laughs> like that's not a good idea. Um, so it's it's all marketing. Paid for by your taxpayer dollars too. <laughs> um, Natalie, producing this film, um, obviously you're still busy acting all the time. Is this something you? What was the experience like? Do you think you want to do more of it, like in the doc world? Well, I have to say, I mean, I I cannot claim to have been, you know, when you see a director working five years tirelessly, you know, his entire life, his entire, you know, energy and 
brain power and everything all consumed by this. It's hard to to say that it was any like big deal that I I feel like I you know was like oh it would be cool to make a documentary of this find this <laughs> director do the work call sir. some people yeah. and then <laughs> he goes for five years and then I'm here at the end so um, so really it's Christopher um, but yeah it was great well, for me how many hours were you in the sound booth <laughs> on that narration we we did we did a few rounds of that but still nothing compared to five years how how did you decide to narrate it by the way like did, was that your idea. Uh, well, I don't even think of narration until the very end, because if you know, it's it's something that comes in as a a, a last. The the whole angle in the edit is like, what is the least amount of narration we can put into the film? And so it came up kind of quick, and we knew we were going to go to Telluride. So we were, uh, we had already started. Kind of, there were many iterations, but uh, well, actually three. We laid down three different ones and we kind of refined them and shortened them and talked about that the idea of using the pronoun usage so it's like he she we you know instead of just doing the omniscient I yeah. uh, and uh, we played around with it a lot but it, in the end it, you know it came down to it's also it was a good replacement because Jonathan in the book it's a very personal there's almost a you know the, the beginning is about his mother uh, grandmother coming out of you know a concentration camp and starving and how it related to so many things down the road to him you know like uh, and it's a beautiful story but in a lot of ways there it, w it was nice to have some sort of voice that was outside of the individual narrative stories and that's kind of where Natalie's voice came in and I think did a really great job of kind of making us think collectively of ourselves you know like they went down the road instead of you know and that was just a choice we decided to create that atmosphere through the narration. Can you talk about, I think this is an interesting story about like how the footage of the pink slime sort of lagoons wouldn't have even been able to be shot given the current laws that are in place, the ad gag laws? Yeah, I mean, we were just really lucky. Or, you know, when we were down there, you know, for, we went down a number of times, so I think probably four or five times, and by the second or third time, we were always followed. There were these, uh, so Murphy Brown security would follow us, and uh, and then by the fifth time, we were just like, how you doing? You know, <laughs> I was like, we, we both had our jobs, and we punched uh, punched the clock. But you got a little bit, like, testy with that one guy on the street, in the road. Yeah, which is actually a really, I mean, it's kind of amazing because while that was going on, I had, that was the closest I had ever come to a pink lagoon. And I, I actually knocked all the oxygen out of me, so I was actually gagging the whole time. So I. What is it, it like? Well, it, it's methane, so it just it, it zaps your oxygen. So I was crying from oh the God. methane, and, and then I was gagging and, and I was looking around at everybody and they were used to it so I was the only I was the newbie and so while he's while he's yelling at me I was actually just off off camera gagging <laughs> Wow um, let's open it up to some questions and definitely questions not comments if that's possible thank you um, right here Hi, I just wanted to ask you guys a question about Uh, 
Um, well, it's actually interesting that you brought up a tale of love and darkness because I feel like the um, the greatest directive I've ever heard about that was from the the author of that book said to me, "The book exists." make something different. And I think that's really great um, as, as sort of an adaptation concept because if you love a book enough to adapt it, you hope that people still read it and aren't watching the movie as like a replacement for, re for reading the book. And um, hopefully that the movie, if they haven't read the book already, like will make them go and read it and have a different experience. And so similar to what I was saying before, just trying to make them their own animals. That was the movie you directed, but yeah. Right there. Hi, thank you. Um, my father died when he was only 33 of a heart attack. He was raised on a makeshift farm in Maine, and cholesterol just killed him. I have a Bachelor of Science in Nutrition because yeah, that's how I grew his belly. <laughs> but my question is, um, I tried to stay vegan most of my life, and it's difficult. But I wonder if you could comment more on the beyond um, Company, which I believe is in Southern California, isn't it? Is that the case? El Segundo. <laughs> <laughs> New home of the LA Times, guys. Yep. <laughs> you can hustle right across the street and get a. At least Beyond I can burger. get a damn Beyond Burger there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we looked at all the plant-based, and that it it grew up so quickly. You know, um, there's Just, which used to be uh, they made Just Mayo, and they're a company that's kind of I don't know exactly where they sit, but they're, they're having a hard time kind of scaling up right now. Um, and then I met Ethan, I met a lot of like the Impossible Burger crew, and I also met Memphis Meats, which is the test tube meat that they're working on, you know, that they can brew flesh, you know, and it's not even from an animal. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's coming. Um, but I, something about uh, Ethan was really, you know, he kind of grew up on a farm, and he also, he just, you know, he's, he seemed to align himself with what he's doing with where we're heading and all the problems that are, you know, he, so that's why I ended up, you know, highlighting him more than anything else is he was, everything he did, you know, the reason why he grew, uh, you know, uh, beyond meat into what it was is because he's worried about the future. And that seemed to be that aligned with my sensibilities or my fear because I just kind of came into this story and realized, holy crap, we're in trouble. And and he was he's he was thinking about that for years. But I don't know if anybody's tried the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger. But they're they're amazing I mean they're amazing. You know, all this kind of plant based alternatives are like it's kind of, and that seems to be a, a good recipe for the future, too, is if you're going to opt out, you know, once or twice a week, it seems like a really reasonable thing to do to look at these plant-based alternatives. At least that's what I did. Uh, and know. I love the I love the thing he says about, like, um, that they used to call electricity a gaslight substitute. It's so great, because it's true. It's, at a certain point, it just becomes, it should become normalized and be its own, own thing. It just becomes electricity, yeah. Okay. Couple more right there. I the eager. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Thank you so much for the film. 
Um, I appreciate it. My name is Olympia Asset, and I have an organic grocery that makes it easy and affordable for people to eat well in food deserts. Awesome. So African Americans are the leader, leading consumers of meat in this country, and I'm wondering if you guys are employing any strategies to make sure that this message gets to the low-income people and the people who are doing most of the consuming of these goods because they live in places where it's hard to get fruits and vegetables, and if you guys need help with that. Yes, yes, yes. We do, we do need help spreading, spreading the word. Um, uh, and it's something, when we had them film in, in the Telluride Festival, um, we showed to a group of high school students who said this to us, who were like, we know and we can't buy an apple in our neighborhood. And like, we don't lack this information, we lack the access, so yes. Let us know and how we can, you know, link to what you're doing. And yeah, we need help spreading the word because it is absolutely a question of access. And it's part of the angering thing about this is the um, the like disproportionate impact it has on low-income communities and um, um, and you know how cheap, unhealthy food is being um, is you know being really promoted to, and I liked to what you people. said about how like a lot of people tend to say like well just go to a fancy farm or like go to the farmers market and it's not like everyone can just do that yeah well there is like the elitist question of like oh we're just gonna buy humanely sourced meat or whatever and you're like okay that's like a hundred dollars you know it's like not that's not the answer um, and truly like plant-based diet is among the most affordable diets in the world, like rice and beans is like the staple of every, you know, cuisine in the world for for the general population. Um, so it's um, it's definitely possible. And these newer um, these newer meat substitutes or you know electricity food um, will also hopefully uh, meet that demand for for lower um, lower cost. Um, vegan vegetarian food. And just to add to that, I mean, I'm working with uh, somebody uh, who has started this organization called Brigade, but it's uh, it's kind of trying to address food deserts in a way, but it's it, he's specifically with schools, because as you saw in the film, and it, I just touched on it briefly, but it's this idea that anytime there's a surplus of meat or cheese or dairy, the industry just goes to the U.S. government and then demands that they buy it. And so then they deposit it on our kids, you know. Uh, so you can see if the dairy industry is not doing really well, your kid's menu at school will have lots of cheese pizza and cheese this and that. And it's, 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 it's as simple as that, you know, that the dairy council can go to USDA and say we have a bunch of surplus stuff and we deposited it on our kids lunch but there's a, a guy that I work with that is trying to take scratch cooking back into the schools because his whole argument is that if you do it in the schools then there'll be a demand when they actually start to purchase food on their own they'll you know to start the cycle early and have it uh, you know uh, resonate in school and so he's opened up he's working in New London right now but uh, New York City's just hired him to do the whole New York City uh, food program. 
but what was really great is he just invited them in the whole community in for scratch cooking once a week and it's really had a big effect so he's a he's somebody that would be great to talk to you about uh you know i mean that would be a good good person to maybe uh uh link with we time for one more one more right there thank you uh, given the fact that it appears your broader goal is that to get people to make the decision to reduce their animal meat consumption, and given the fact that you seem to have focused on the inhumane treatment to animals and the unhealthful conditions the animals endure, is there some reason you chose not to spend a few minutes talking about simply the new evidence of ill health to human beings from eating animal meat. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I like to think that we did cover it, but maybe we didn't cover it enough, and that's a, a editorial note I wish I, I had earlier. Um, but there, I mean, there are, there are, you know, so there's Neil Bernard, and he speaks very specifically about that. And, you know, we, of course, had a lot more of Neil Bernard talking about how you know it's it's an enormous problem but also commodity meat you know the the corn-fed beef is actually is much more of a problem than grass-fed grass-finished beef and it throws your body way out of uh, you know out of sorts and there's a lot of um there's a lot of health problems that uh come from it right uh so yeah i mean it it i i i took the film with and looked at it through three lenses, human health, which is what you're addressing, and, and maybe we fell a little short on that, but also uh, animal suffering, and then uh, environment. And those things are, you know, no matter which one you care about, they're all interconnected. And it's one of those things in the end, I think, that uh, at least I, you know, looking at all the evidence, I, I realize that, you, you know, I, I can't support I can't support this system, you know. So, but human health is a huge issue. And we went to India and you can see the empirical data is there. Like, you know, all, so groups are eating, you know, urban, in urban centers, they're eating more meat than they ever have. And their type two diabetes is skyrocketing. You know, uh, heart disease is skyrocketing. Um, morbid obesity skyrocketing. So the evidence is all there. Neil Bernard said, I, I hate what's going on in India, but I also love the data because it's the first time they've been able to see, here's a mostly vegetarian uh, country, and now they've adopted the so-called Western diet, and we're seeing these incredible numbers of, of human, you know, the, the human health is really going down the drain. So it's a good point, and it's an endless story. I mean, it's, it's really a documentary on to its own. Great questions, you guys. And let's give a big round of applause to Natalie Thank and Christopher. You Hope you have a great weekend. Thank you all for being here. We're going to let them head out thank first. You. And then you guys, thank you again for coming. Thank you.